everyone, and thank you for coming back and joining me on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and tonight I've got two of the top instructors in the game that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. First up, I'm going to get a return visit from the South Florida PGA Teacher of the Year from back in 2010, and the guy has become a great friend of the show, and that's Chris Chaya. Chris is also the PGA instructor at Boca West Country Club down in Boca Raton, Florida. And you've probably seen him as a a swing fix instructor on the Golf Channel. First of all, we'll start off and find out how he and the folks down at Boca West fared through Hurricane Irma. And then we'll get Chris's tips on how to improve our short game and our putting strokes. We'll also see who he thinks is going to come out on top on the uh, at the uh, Tour Championship this week up here in Atlanta. Chris is going to be along with me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll be joined by Alan Miller. Alan is also one of the top uh, teaching professionals in the game. You've probably seen him also on the Golf Channel sharing his playing lessons. Alan played out on the PGA Tour for 15 years from 1970 through the mid-80s. He was a part of the University of Georgia team here, right, here in Georgia, right, won three straight SEC titles in the late 1960s. In all, he had 69 top 25 finishes out on tour, including winning the 1974 Tallahassee Open and finishing 15th at the 1975 Masters. So a lot to get into when Alan joins me a little bit later on in this half hour. So more great stories and information coming your way tonight on Next on the T. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me over the next hour. And as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our friend Steve Rondonero about what they have coming up this fall. Fall golf is gorgeous at French Lick Resort. Perched on one of the highest points in Indiana, the Pete Dye course hosted the first ever senior LPGA championship this summer. Ask the ladies, the views are spectacular. The venerable Donald Ross course is looking better than ever as it celebrates its centennial. Go to FrenchLick.com and save with our Hall of Fame package. Play legendary golf at French Lick Resort this fall. Yeah, be sure to go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great it is and to book your stay as well. I also want to remind you about our friends at Kinetic Sports, makers of Club Hub Sensors, the most comprehensive swing analysis and shot tracking tool in golf. If you're like me and you want to know all the data related to your swing, your swing speed, distance you hit every club in your bag, your swing tempo, angle of attack, and so much more, then Club Hub Sensors are what you're looking for. And guess what? You can get all that data for every shot, whether you're on the course or out on the range. Plus, their iPhone and Android apps have thousands of courses preloaded and mapped out for you. So not only will you be able to get GPS distances to your target and to the hazards, but you'll also be able to look back and see exactly where and how far you hit each shot on that course. Think of what that's going to do for you for your preparation the next time you go play that same course. The app will also track the average distance you hit each club. No more guessing or approximating. Are you ready to improve your game? Are you ready to take what you know about your swing to a new level, either on the range or out on the course? Well, Club Hub's going to get you there. See what they can do for you at clubhubgolf.com and use the promo code NEXT to get 10% off on all products. Again, clubhubgolf.com. And we're also excited to welcome the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company to Next on the Tee. The Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company is back with the same great equipment that you know and love without the retail market markup that you hate. You can now buy premium Ben Hogan irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, and bags directly from the factory at prices your wallet's going to appreciate. 
Visit them online at benhogangolf.com. And to order online or to order over the phone, give them a call at 844-53-HOGAN. That's 844-53-HOGAN. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. Their new fall collection is out. It's time to update your wardrobe with enduring style from the Bobby Jones Apparel Company. See it all online, again, by going to bobbyjones.com. And, folks, as you know, we have been partnering with Russ Holden and the great folks at Caddy for a Cure. So one of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and a terrible disease, Fancona anemia. You walk side-by-side side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to this amazing experience, you're going to receive a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logo apparel, an eyewear package, a tour-grade uh, caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a 10-cup ball marking gift, chef's cut real jerky, and professional photographs of your day. Go to Caddy for a Cure, and that's spelled out F-O-R, so Caddy, C-A-D-D-Y, F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E, CaddyforACure.com to learn more. All right, now back with me and making his third appearance on the French Lick Resort guest line is Chris Chaya. Let me remind you a little bit more about Chris's background. He's from Greenwich, Connecticut, played his college golf at East Carolina University and earned his degree in marketing. He's been a PGA golf instructor for the last 24 years at Boca West Country Club in Boca Raton, Florida. He was named the PGA Teacher of the Year for the South Florida section by PGA of America back in 2010. He's been a swing fix instructor and contributor doing videos, analysis, and writing articles for the Golf Channel. And I am honored that he is back again with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, my, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for that nice intro. Uh, it's great to be back. I'm a big fan of your show, and uh, I really appreciate it. It's always great to spend time with you talking golf, and, and hopefully some of the things I share with the listeners will, will help them with their games, and especially their short game. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So, Chris, before we get into all the, you know, all the golf stuff, you know, how did how did you and how did the golf course at uh, Boca West Fair coming through Hurricane Irma? Well, I tell you, it was it was a tough storm. Uh, it's one of the very few times at Boca West we've closed. Uh, we were closed for uh, probably four or five days, and uh, we we fared uh, pretty well. The courses are, are are rebounding really well, and, and there's some tree damage, but. Um, Things are up and running. People are, are golfing, and uh, we, we were very fortunate um, on the East Coast in, in Palm Beach County. Uh, for the, the, the majority of the storm, you know, went west, uh, and, and really uh, our thoughts and prayers are with everybody that was uh, more affected by Irma. It was it was a tough, it was a scary storm. Yeah, absolutely, it was. We got a taste of it, a little bit of a taste of it up here in Atlanta. Certainly nothing like you guys did in the in the folks throughout Florida. But, uh, yeah, to your point, Chris, our thoughts and prayers still remain with everybody impacted by Hurricane Irma. And, Chris, yep. you and I have talked in the past about, you know, some of your favorite players that were out on tour mm -hmm. that you watched, you know, earlier on in, in, in your career, guys like Jack Nicklaus, Lee Trevino, Payne Stewart. What was it about those three guys that you admired so much? Well, I mean, Nicholas, I was a huge fan as a kid growing up, uh, watching him, uh, win, win in tournaments and his dedication to the game. And, and, uh, you know, he was really, uh, unbelievable to watch in person. And, 
through my teenage years, uh, I went to the Westchester Classic every year and watched that. But I really uh, learned early on watching some of the great players that, number one, that they were able to score even when they didn't hit perfect golf shots. So I was, uh, as a caddy as a kid, um, I did a lot of caddying in my youth. And, you know, you would see the, the pros uh, not hit good shots, but scramble, and they would always stay in the game. And, and I learned early on, which I think helped my, my development as a player, that I didn't have to be perfect in my ball striking tee to green to score. And that really got me to focus on my short game, like with Ben Crenshaw, his short game abilities. And I, I spent a lot of time chipping and putting as a junior player, and that really helped uh, my game develop uh, to the level it, it got to. So you, you watch those guys growing up, and, and I'm sure they had an influence on you and, and, and you know your play and in your swing. But who were some mm-hmm. of the instructors, Chris, that you worked with along the way that you know kind of taught you the game and, and helped you develop your swing? Well, there were a few early on. Uh, Billy Mitchell, the late uh, William A. Mitchell at Ennis Arden Golf Club, was very instrumental in my development. Um, you know, he took uh, me as a caddy at the club at Ennis Arden Golf Club. And, you know, encouraged me to enter tournaments and helped me with my game and, and taught me the fundamentals at an early age, which really, really helped me quite a bit. And then when I started to see some nice success through high school, being twice in Connecticut and through the MGA tournaments, uh, runner up in the Metropolitan Junior Tournament, um, then I went to Jim McLean a number of times. And Jim, uh, when he was in the Met section, uh, kind of helped my game get to the next level. And then it was on to college. And in college, I didn't take a lot of uh, formal instruction, but I I worked extremely hard on my fundamentals that I was taught. And I think that shaped my teaching philosophy quite a bit because early on learning the fundamentals, the way I was coached and and having a very strong foundation uh, really taught me the values of those fundamentals. And that's uh, real pillars of my teaching method to this day. And and talk about that, Chris, when you talk about, you know, the foundation that, that was laid, you know, for you and the fundamentals you put together. When you talk fundamentals, what does that mean to you? Well, let's talk about the full swing, for example. Uh, some of the key fundamentals I was taught how to grip the club correctly. And, and I noticed early on that the great players like Jack Nicholas and we go back a little further uh, into Ben Hogan's fundamentals. But the, the grip that I was taught, not overlap grip, but I was taught how to put my hands on the golf club correctly. And, you know, I, I used a standard size grip with, with a reminder, and to this day I use the same grip. But my grip was very sound, and that was key. And I was also taught posture and balance. And, it, and a key, you know, one of the first considerations is good balance. And I was able to swing at the ball aggressively and maintain my balance, and that, that, was, that was coached into me at, at an early age. And, you know, from there I was very fortunate to uh, – have a good feel for the swing where my, my swing plane was always real good and my posture was good, but just paying attention to the things that I could control the pre swing fundamentals. Um, and I did a lot of work in front of mirrors and, and with uh, video. And I think that got me into the habit of really trying to perfect my basics and the things that I could control the grip, posture, balance, um, and then through college, what, one of the things I focused on quite a bit was my pre-shot routine. I was very 
diligent in how I worked on my routine. And I think that helped me uh, in my playing under pressure was that I was very solid with that routine. And to that point, Chris, you know, pre-shot routine, I don't know that enough, you know, enough, you know, we amateurs, right, go through and have a, you know, a routine that we go through before every shot. Talk about why that's important. And then to your point, I think it comes most into play when you start to feel pressure, you know, and for us, it's, you know, whether we're playing with our buddies, right, for, you know, who has bragging rights, oh, yeah. who's buying the beer at the 19th hole, or for, you know, juniors, right, that are starting to get into tournament play or we're playing in our club championship, whatever it is. Talk about why having a pre-shot routine that you go through before every shot is so important. Well, I related it to my basketball experience. I actually played basketball in high school uh, with Steve Young, the quarterback uh, for the 49ers, but we played, and I noticed all the free-throw shooters had a, you know, a good free-throw shooters all had a ritual before they would shoot. And, and I kind of figured out, well, if I did that, I would be a better shooter. And then I would look at, let's say, in football, the, the field goal kickers had their routine before they would kick a field goal, and they would always go through the same ritual. And then I started watching players like, you know, Jack Nicholas and, and some of the superstars of the game. And I noticed that they approached the ball a certain way, and they did it every time the same way. So it made a lot of sense to me from my long game to the putting that if I had a routine and and I could stick with it like clockwork, you know, I could put a stopwatch on myself from start when I pull the club out of the bag to when I hit the ball, and it's always the same. And that's one thing I noticed with some players today that I actually don't think is uh, conducive to a good routine is I see a lot of players on the tour, for example, doing a lot of talking back and forth with their caddy. And it's almost like every, every time they get to the ball, it's almost a little different until it's go time. And then it kind of kicks into the routine. But I think it, players would benefit from having a very precise pre-shot routine for every part of their game. Now, with that said, with the routine, there's certain specialty shots where I would actually uh, work away from that pre-shot routine. For example, like a, a specialty type bunker shot that was geared a lot towards the feel of the shot. I would not stick to, you know, taking uh, so many steps to the ball and, and looking at the hole twice and swinging on, a, on that type of shot. I may look at the target four times or five times before I swing because it's, it's a very feel focused shot, like a flop shot um, or some chip shots around the green. I might take six or eight practice strokes before a certain chip shot. And that's definitely not what I do on my full swing. So when I teach the routine to players, you know, if they're at a high level, you know, I kind of explain to them that there's, there's the routine for your full swings and there's a routine for your putting. But on certain specialty shots, we kind of toss that out the window and just go more by exact feel. If that makes sense. It's a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other sports, I, you know, certain reflex action, there's not going to be a routine, but when, when a player in a sport has the time to have a routine and they're really at a high level, they all do the same thing every time, whether it's, you know, how they serve a tennis ball or how they're kicking the field goal or how they're going to shoot. Um, it definitely gets you in the right mindset because it just it becomes a lot of more subconscious when you're so used to that routine. So on the driving range, for example, what I would do is, I would get behind each shot, just like around the golf course. I'd take four steps to the ball, set the club down, set my body to the club, and look twice, and then I swing with no real downtime from the final look to when I start my backswing. And 
going through that ritual from driver to, to full swing with a wedge, it's the same routine. And in tournament play, I found that to be very helpful because everything would, would become more subconscious where I could just kind of go through the motions and everything was always the same. And if I ever had a routine, if I ever broke the routine, I would start all over again. And I think that that really helped me get to the next level with my playing. Now I didn't win a, I didn't win a PGA Tour event like your next guy, uh, but I did I did play in the Ben Hogan Tour and play in some some big tournaments. But um, it's something that that golfers can benefit from. You know, if we look at putting, we talk about how to become a better putter. When you really look at how simple we can make a, a putting stroke, we want to keep it simple. But to be a great putter, you really have to have a, a solid, solid routine, whether it's taking one look and putting, two looks. It's got to be the same every time to hold up uh, on the golf course. And Chris, you know, as you mentioned a moment ago, you've played in a number of big golf tournaments. And um, I'm, I'm always curious, you know, at what point, you know, when you start to get, you know, as, as the tournaments get bigger and bigger, right, the crowds get bigger and bigger. You get more mm-hmm. and more people there to watch an event. At what point does, does that, are you able to just take those folks and put them into the background? Does, does the, the amount of eyes watching every movement you make and those sorts of things, at what point do, do you finally get comfortable that they're there and you just, you know, sort of, you know, phase them out and you don't notice them anymore? Well, it's just, it just comes down to how many times you're in that situation to become comfortable with it. I mean, I can re- recall the first time, you know, I played in a tournament that was televised on the golf channel, for example. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it the night before I played and I was thinking about it every shot I was playing on the golf course. Every, every, <laughs> every shot, every hole, I was aware that the cameras were there. Now, as you play in the next tournament, the next tournament, after a while, you don't even notice it, but it's like the first few times you're, you're, you're out there and there's a lot of people or it's televised. You, you definitely notice it. But it doesn't take long before you realize, hey, I'm, I'm performing, I'm hitting good shots, and you kind of get used to it. Um, and then it doesn't, it doesn't really phase you. Uh, so it's just a matter of putting yourself in that position multiple times, and then, and then you get used to it. But again, Let's talk to a little routine. bit. If you have a, yeah, if you have a good pre-shot routine, like I was always, I always, I always felt very confident hitting the first shot off the first tee. I never had that fear of the first shot like some golfers struggle with. You know, how do they hit their shot with their buddies on a Saturday morning uh, or club championship on the first tee or state championship or, or whatever. And I, I was always into my routine where the first shot on the first hole never threw me off. Um, for some reason, it was just no problem because it was just like a shot on the driving range. And I think that, again, is, it comes from the training and, and being really good at, at fundamentals in golf and sticking with that routine. And I think that's what a lot of players could benefit from, you know, working with their coach on developing their own style of play and their own routine, sticking with it. So, Chris, um, let's talk a little bit about the short game. And since the majority of the game is played from 100 yards, and we talk about it a lot, and I, I like to give our listeners some tips and some drills that they can do to help get the ball closer to the hole. So what are some things that, that you see that we amateurs do wrong in our short games and what steps can we take to hit our wedges better? Well, the first thing I see a lot of amateurs uh, do wrong when they're out there playing on the golf course, because I do a lot of playing lessons, is I see the amateur player inside of 100 yards, they gravitate to a club that has too much loft. 
And I see this all the time, whether it's in a pro-am, playing lesson, you know, a player's, let's say you got a good country club golfer and he's 80 yards from the green and he's thinking about what he saw on TV with the tour pro taking a lob wedge and hitting it from, you know, the same distance and they try to pull off the same shot. Well, most golfers would benefit by keeping the lob wedge in the bag and taking a sand wedge and, and even the higher handicapper should gravitate more towards just hitting a pitching wedge on those shots because most amateurs come up short when they, when they, when they hit their approach shots. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in teaching players how to use the pitching wedge more than the lofted wedges. So to that end, right? So what would we do, you know, with, you know, hitting that pitching wedge? Are you more of a, you know, hey, take a three-quarter swing? Or how do, how do, you, know, how do you teach folks, you know, hey, put that uh, sand wedge back in your bag. Let's take that, this the pitching wedge, and then do this. What do we do? Well, that's a great question, Chris. The, the It all starts from, Working on the practice range, and you can do it on a tee box. You don't have to be shooting. Like we're, we're very fortunate at Boca West have a fantastic short game complex where we can shoot wedge shots from 80 yards and into an actual or you know, large target green. Um, if you're working on a driving range and and you just take out your pitching wedge, you have to discover which is best for you. Are you are you going to do better controlling distance by the speed that you swing the wedge, or by adjusting the size of the swing? So by that, I mean, if a player I've in coaching golfers, I've noticed some players really have a hard time with adjusting the size of their swing. You know, if you ask a player to take a three quarter swing, invariably they take it all the way back. Or if you say, take it back waist high, they, they still take it all the way back. So if, if that player has a problem calibrating the swing with the size, I teach them how to, to go more by changing the, the pace of the stroke. So you think of your arm swing, how fast are you swinging the wedge to control the distance, not necessarily by the size of the swing. Now, other golfers might feel much more inclined to, to let's say, using an example like a clock. If you start at 6 o'clock is where the address position is, and 12 o'clock is above your head, if you take the club back to you know, nine o'clock is one size shot, 10 o'clock on your back swing would give you another size shot and so on. You could calibrate the swing that way. So it's, it's kind of like either or. Um, but I, I see a big trend towards players that use the pitching wedge more on an approach shot tend to score better than the players that always go to a, a lob wedge. And then I'd like to share with your listeners, like in my bag, I don't even carry a gap wedge. I just go a 60. 56 and then my pitching wedge so some might say well gee chris how are you going to control your wedge when you're hitting less than a full sand wedge well through feel i can hit my pitching wedge any distance from let's just say a full pitching wedge is 125 yards let's 130 maybe to to one yard i can hit it any distance in, in that range so i don't need the gap wedge so when i coach players just to keep it simple we need to Learn how to use the pitching wedge, then the sand wedge. Now, once you get good around the greens and you're feeling good with your game, then you can maybe add the 60-degree wedge. But typically, most amateurs would just do better with pitching wedge, sand wedge, than, than even introducing 60. And I see some guys show up and girls, uh, they'll come out for lessons with 62, 64-degree wedges, and, and they struggle because there's so many options. They have four or five different wedges to choose from, 
and they can't make up their mind. And then they're then they're not sure what they're going to do, and they and they don't hit a good golf shot. Whereas, I could think back of, of watching a lot of uh, pros uh, and some LPGA pros where they would use a sand wedge almost for everything, and they were great around the greens. Um, I played one time with a with a guy that was on the tour, 75th on the money list, and and I asked him, I said, "How do you practice?" And he says, "Oh, I just use my sand wedge." I don't even practice with my lob wedge hardly at all. I just hit all the shots with my sand wedge, and that's how they really dial in their short game. And I said that that was interesting. And I've heard mm-hmm. world class golfers say they practice a lot with their pitching wedge. But when I look at how I coach players over over the couple of decades I've been coaching, I see a lot of improvement with the country club player and the and the weekend golfers when when they go to that. And the junior golfers, when they learn how to hit pitching wedges, different distances, it really teaches good feel. So I would encourage everybody to, to give that a go and, and, and spend more time with the wedge. Don't just go to the, the highest lofted club in your bag. And Chris, one more before we let you go, but let's talk about ball position and stance. Where should we position mm-hmm. the ball on full wedge shots, and does it change as you start getting closer and closer to the green? Well, a standard rule of thumb for, for ball placement would be you want to play the golf ball in the middle of your stance. And if you, and if you want to soften the shot or add a little more loft, you move it more to the left side of it for a right-handed golfer. You move it more towards the left side of your stance. So the guideline really is for approach shots, middle of the stance to forward. Now, if you're trying to flight the ball lower than normal, then you move it back. But for straightforward shots, just from a normal lie, normal conditions. I like players to put wedges more in the middle and and move it up a little bit in the stance because it still promotes a good move to the left side as you come through the ball. Uh, very often, players that kind of go with the old school of putting the ball back off the right foot and trapping it, they tend to hang back and, and not get through the shots as, as well and, and promote some certain uh, uh, mishits. My my guideline would be middle to slightly forward, unless you're trying to hit it low intentionally. So, Chris, before we let you go, remind our listeners about how they're going to be able to, you know, stay up to date with the things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Well, uh, people can reach me at Boca West Country Club. I'm there year-round. Uh, I can also be reached at 833-PGA-GOLF. They can call me at 833-PGA-GOLF. Uh, they can contact me through my website, which is um, www.christianchaya.com. So I can be reached through there. Any questions they might have in their game or they want to uh, set up a lesson, they can contact me. Um, so those are the best numbers, 833-PGA-GOLF, or they can uh, contact Boca West Country Club and uh, come out and visit with me. We have a great facility out there. There's four courses and um, the number one rated club in, in the state of Florida. So it's great. But I really want to thank you again for having me on the show. Pleasure. And I hope the I listeners got, got a, few, yeah, a few pointers from the short game. Um, and one other thing I'd like uh, people to consider is finding a putter that you like the look of. You know, go go to your local store, your golf shop, and, and try to pick out a putter that's appealing to your eye, number one, and that is the right length. But if you like the look of a putter and you get the right length, that's a good starting point. 
I think a lot of players gravitate to what they think is the next greatest thing, but uh, they have a hard time with alignment or, or they get distracted by the look of the putter. And I've always found uh, some of the best things. If I look at the, the putters that I've used in my career that I've had the most success with, they all kind of look very much the same. So I think a lot of it has to do with the look and the feel of the putter. And then, and then have your, uh, have me or, or, or your pro in your area help you with, uh, you know, working on a, a consistent routine and stroke that can really take you to the next level. That's great stuff, Chris. And I appreciate you sharing all the different tips that you, that you did with us tonight. And can't thank you enough for, uh, for your time and, and coming back on the show. I hope you'll come back again and, uh, and do it with me again real soon. Always enjoy spending time Good. with you. Well, thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Uh, keep up the good work. Your show is great. And I uh, want to just uh, thank everybody for listening and, and uh, keep working on your golf game. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's a great sport, and it's great to get on that golf course and, and try some, some new things out there. But uh, stick to the basics, and, and you'll see some improvement. There you go. Thanks again, Chris. Look forward to catching up with you soon. In between now and then, all the best to you and your family, my friend. Just right back at you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. That is Chris Chaya, and he spells his last name, or his last name is spelled, I should say, C-Z-A-J-A. So Chris Chaya, look him up uh, online, ChristianChaya.com. He's got some really good stuff on his website and uh, a lot of good tips. Look forward to catching up with again, uh, catching up with, with uh, Chris again here real soon. All right, before we get to my next guest, Alan Miller, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our, our uh, sponsors. And first of all, I want to remind you about our friends over at SyncIt.com. You know how we like to keep things on the positive side on uh, Next on the Tee and have a positive approach both in life and out on the golf course? Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought of sinking the putt in your mind with their great line of T-shirts and hats. To win any golf tournament, you got to sink the final putt. We all wake up every day to finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, get better each and every day. Have the confidence to push forward with your dreams with unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check them out online at sinkit.com. Also want to give another shout-out to our folks, our friends over at uh, Kinetic Sports, makers of Club Hub Sensors, the most comprehensive swing analysis and shot tracking tool in golf. If you're like me, folks, and you want to know all the data related to your swing, your swing speed, the distance you hit every club in your bag, your swing tempo, angle of attack, and so much more than club hub sensors are what you're looking for. And guess what? You can get all of that data for every shot, whether you're on the course or out on the range. Plus, their iPhone and Android apps have thousands of courses preloaded and mapped out for you. So not only are you going to be able to get the GPS distances to your targets and to the hazards, but you'll also be able to look back and see exactly where and how far you hit each shot. Think of what that's going to do for you for your preparation for the next time you're going to go play that same golf course. The app will also track the average distance you hit each club in your bag, so no more guessing or approximating. Are you ready to improve your game? Are you ready to take what you know about your swing to a new level, whether you're on the range or out on the golf course? Well, Clubhub is going to get you there. See what they can do for you by going to clubhubgolf.com and use the promo code NEXT to get 10% off on all products. Again, clubhubgolf.com. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Par Bar. Energy and focus on the golf course is essential, whether you're playing you know, with your buddies out on tour or the club championship. Par Bar, the golfer's nutritional bar, is going to help you with both of those things. Eat some before you get to the first tee, and then the rest every three holes until it's finished, and you're going to play with more energy and focus to win. Par Bar was developed by a lifelong golfer and a food scientist to help all golfers play their best. 
Go online to parbargolf.com to order yours today. And this segment of the show, folks, we are sponsored by the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGASuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris. And now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Alan Miller. Let me give you some background on Alan. He is from San Diego, California, played his college golf here in Georgia at the University of Georgia and was named team captain from 1968 to 1970. He was the number two ranked amateur in the country in 1969 and 1970. He was a member of the 1969 and 1971 Walker, Walker Cup teams. And the 1970 victorious Eisenhower Trophy team that also featured guys like Tom Kite and Lanny Watkins. Allen won the 1970 Canadian Amateur Championship by 10 strokes over guys like Billy Kratzer, who is also a fellow uh, University of Georgia alumni. Allen turned pro in 1971 and got his first win on tour at the 1974 Tallahassee Open. He finished tied for 15th at the 1975 Masters and was tied for second after an opening round 68. In all, Allen had 18 top 10 finishes on tour and 69 top 25s. Since retiring from the tour, he's become one of the best teaching professionals out there, along with his wife, Cindy Miller, who is one of my all-time favorite guests here on the show. You can see Allen regularly now on the Golf Channel's Golf Academy, sharing his tips and playing lessons, and I am honored that he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Allen. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, good evening, Chris. It's nice to be with you. Thank you so much for the nice comments there. That's uh makes me feel good as an old man. <laughs> You're welcome. So, Alan, I wanted to start our time by going back to your amateur days in, in college golf. I'm here in Atlanta where, you know, everything University of oh, Georgia cool. does is a big deal. So, I'm uh, curious to get from you, how does a kid from San Diego who also spent a lot of time in Florida end up winding up uh, playing his college golf here at the University of Georgia? Well, to be honest, I'm not from – I was born in San Diego. My dad was in the Navy. I was only there for six months. I actually moved to Pensacola, Florida when I was five years old and grew, actually grew up there. I lived there until Cindy and I moved up to Buffalo in 1986. Even while I was on the tour, we were still living there. So I'm a I'm a North Florida boy, and to be honest with you, I had three or four full scholarship rides. I'd won the Florida State High School my senior year in high school, and I had three or four offers, and – I really didn't like a couple of places that I went to look at. I, and one of them happened to be the University of Florida. No one knocking them if it need be because Georgia people don't like the University of Florida. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I didn't like it there so much. And, and I, out of a, on the spur of the moment, I decided to write the golf coach at the University of Georgia and see if he had any money available. And he sent me back a, a letter saying, I really appreciate your interest in the University of Georgia. But unfortunately, I don't have any athletic money this year, you know, to give you, and uh, you know, good luck in your your thing. So I wrote him right back and said, "Well, thank you for considering me, uh, but I already have some some good offers, and I, you know, I can't come there for 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 nothing." And about three days later, I'm sitting in a class in my high school, and the principal comes down to, and I knew the principal was a patient of my dad's, who was a doctor. He made a point to come down and get me out of class, and he brought me down to his office. He said, I have a telegram here for you. People of my age know what telegrams are, but some of these kids don't know. But it's like a like a text <laughs> message, right? And the telegram read said said from the University of Georgia uh, golf coach revised offer of athletic scholarship to a full ride, same as a f- football player gets. Please advise. 
So I said, oh, my God, maybe he wants me after all. I said, so I, I called him up right up. He said, yeah, we want, I'd love to have you come up now. I, I'm going to have you here if you want. Can you come up tomorrow? I said, well, yeah, I got a, caught a flight to Athens, Georgia. Uh, they took me to a hotel right near the campus, and the, one of the golf team members let me go, and they said, I'll pick you up in a couple of hours. So I walked, just got out and walked through the campus, which I had done at other schools. And it was a really beautiful campus, if you've ever been to Athens, a beautiful place. And every time I walked by somebody, they would say, good morning, or how are you doing? Hello. You know, not, you know, very friendly, very nice, which had not happened at any other school I'd been to. And I said, you know what? I could live here for four years. The people seem really great. And then I met with a golf coach, met the rest of the golf team members. I got back home right after that trip, and I said, I'm going there. And it was a great decision. I love being there. The people were fantastic the whole time I was there, and it, uh, it was just like a spur of the moment thing, and you know, deja vu. Uh, God works in funny ways, and He's got me there. So I was, I'm a Georgia Bulldog to this day. There you go. And and Alan, you, you played with and against some great players when you were at Georgia yeah. and competing in the SEC and as an amateur. Talk about some of the guys you played with and against while you were there. Well, my team had uh, Pete Davison. He was my roommate the first couple of years. He was uh, ended up being the head professional director of golf at the TPCs for. For a long time, he played the tour just a little bit. But you know what's funny is when I went there, back to that same story, I didn't know anything about the University of Georgia golf team. And when I got there, I found out they had won the SEC more than any other golf team in the, in the conference. And they also had a player named Vinny Giles, Marvin Giles, we call it. It was his real name. Uh, he played in the Masters. We had Tommy Barnes of the Barnes family from Atlanta. Uh, we had a, a, whole fa- a whole line of great players in, in college and amateur golf. And it just it ended up being a lot of players I didn't even know about had, had already been there. There were players at other schools. Uh, Steve Melnick had gone to was it Florida, and Lanny Watkins was at Wake Forest, and a couple of those were my options to go there. But those are the ones some of the ones I turned down, decided not to go to. Um, so there were a lot of great players in amateur golf in those days. Uh, but it you know it was weird that I was at Georgia and didn't know anything about, it, and they had, they had a reputation of a great team. So we had we had a lot of good players to compete against, and of course the SEC was big in golf in those days. It still is, but the Northern schools didn't have as much much golf as that, at that time. But they've obviously grown a lot in the, over the years. And Alan, you mentioned a name a moment ago. Talk about who who Vinny Giles was. Vinny Giles was uh, was just a really good amateur from uh, Richmond, Virginia, and he went to the University of Georgia. And he played, he's played, and he played in two or three Masters. Um, he graduated the year before I came in, so I did, I did not play with him at the same time. He wasn't there the year when I was a recruit. He just graduated. Um, and he and I ended up being on two Walker Cups together and the World Cup team together. We were all team members that way. And it's really, people may, may or may not know it after that. Uh, Vinny started a company in 1971. I was the first client. And it was called, at that time, it was called CNM Enterprises. And he was going to be my agent or manager, just like Mark McCormick for Jack Nicholas and Arnold Bomber. And at that time, there were three or four other major, major managers in the country. But Vinny and his part and his friend, Vernon Spradley, in Richmond, worked for a company called Wheat Company, which was a financial brokerage company, I think it was. And anyway, they, they decided they wanted to get in that business. So we started CNM Enterprises, and I was their first customer. That turned into what was called Pros Incorporated. And Pros Incorporated got uh, people like uh, Davis Love and Tom Kite and Lanny Watkins, you know, managed a lot of great, you know, big name players. But I was their first customer. So we started it off together. And Vinny was just a great amateur, and he still is. Uh, my son, Jamie, 
get to see him a lot when he plays in tournaments down in Seminole and uh, the Crump Cup coming up, I think, at uh, Pine Valley next week. And, you know, this, Vinny is just a long, long-term long good player. And, and, and I had a rapport with him because I was, a, a, you know, becoming a young bulldog and he was a graduated bulldog. And he went to UVA law school after that. So he was a lawyer working for a financial company. So it was a perfect fit for him to get in that business. And because of the Georgia thing, we decided they decided to start us off. So he helped me get my sponsors on the tour. So we became really, really close friends, and we played a lot of golf together. In fact, I just I talked to him for the first time in a couple of years, about about a month ago, because he had just been with my son Jamie down at uh, Seminole. And Alan, let's fast forward to 1974. You, you you win the Tallahassee Open by one stroke over Joe Inman, Eddie Pierce, and 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 Dan Sykes. That tournament. You know, was won by some of the great players. You know, of the 1970s, Lee Trevino yeah. won it in '71. Hubert Green won it the year before you. Ed Snead and Chichi Rodriguez would win it a few years after you. Talk about for you. Talk about that tournament. What you remember about it, and, and you know what it was like coming down the stretch trying to win your first PGA Tour event. You know, what was funny, Chris, about that tournament was at that time the tour had what we called Monday qualifying. They called us rabbits back in those days because you dropped around and hope you got in the tournament. And I was, uh, I had made, if you made the cut the week before you got in the terminal, the Tallahassee Open, I had played decently the year before in 73. So the top 25 automatically got you in the next year. But the three or four weeks before the Tallahassee Open in 74, I had missed Monday qualifying. I had missed it by one shot, one shot. So I wasn't getting into the tournaments. And some people thought, you know, maybe my game had gone to hell or whatever. And I was sitting by the swimming pool at the Killarne Country Club on Wednesday afternoon, evening, early evening, after the Pro-Am. And a sports writer from a little town called Quincy, who I had known, said, Alan, who do you think can win this week? And I looked him right in the eye and I said, me. And he went, you, you haven't, even, you haven't played in the tournament in a month. You haven't even qualified. I said, yeah, you know what? I wasn't quite, I haven't qualified, but I'm not playing. I'm playing good. I just wasn't quite getting, you know, wasn't scoring good. And I could win this week because I really felt good about my game. And I buried the first hole of the tournament, and I led the whole way from there to the finishing hole. Uh, coming down, I know on the back nine the last day, we got a log jam of about three players within one shot of me. I never got out of the lead, but I was tied for a little while coming down with, I think, going to 14. And I turned to my caddy and I said, nobody seems to want to win this. Let's win it outright. And I buried two of the last five holes to win, you know, to win it by one shot. I uh, got on the last hole, and I had a perfect drive in the fair. The 17th hole, I got up and down. I played one of the great shots that I've ever played. In fact, it's in a book called The Greatest Shots of Golf that we did back in the late 70s about a flop shot around the greens. And I had to pull it off. I tried, and I pulled it off in the Walker Cup in 1969 to help us win the match there. So I was really good at it. But it was a risky shot, and I pulled it off, knocked it within six inches to make a birdie on 17 to maintain a one-shot lead. But anyway, I had a five-iron to the last hole the last green i hit it about 10 feet so i had two putts to win and because emma joe emma was everybody else was in the clubhouse and i was playing with him and, and he didn't have a chance to make birdie so i knew i had to win i took turn to my caddy i said if this ball gets to the hole i'll eat it right here and i left it about <laughs> three inches short which was perfect because i didn't want to run it five feet by obviously and i tapped it in one so it was a great feeling it's something i you know I, people had said before can't miss were Steve Melnick and Alan Miller and Alan Miller hadn't done anything yet Steve Melnick never won but Lanny had already won um, now obviously Lanny had a great a great career and we still stay in touch a lot but Steve Steve kind of got out and then started doing announcing and I'm not sure what he's doing now but um, so I never won a lot after that you know tournament I didn't win another tournament but I did have some good, really good finishes after that but 
it was a great feeling because, you know, it's something you always want on the PGA Tour. And at that point, it got me uh, it got me a three-year exemption on all the tournaments, but it also had what they said, you can never lose your card. Because back in those days, you didn't just have the one top, top 125. You had to make top 170 or whatever to maintain plan, you know, even a chance to try to qualify on Mondays, which meant you, you still retained your card, and at least you had the opportunity uh, and if you didn't, you were you were out of luck. You had to go back to the school, which is a totally different setup than it is today. But so that was a big deal too. So now I'm still a lifetime member, actually called a past champion member of the tour, and I pay my dues once a year. Just and I got the same credentials that uh, Jordan Spieth has, or Tiger Woods had, or anybody else has. So it's it's kind of nice when you're 70 years old, almost almost 70, to have those memories and still have today current something I can carry around and say I'm still a member of the PGA Tour. Now, and as you mentioned, you know, you were right in the thick of a lot of tournaments. One of them was the 1975 Masters, one, maybe the greatest Masters tournament ever. And you were tied for second after the first round. You shot 68. You were right there with Jack Nichols, one stroke behind Bobby Nichols. At that point, you'd go on to shoot yep. 75, 72, 73, finish even par, tied for 15th. Talk about what you remember about being right in the middle of that golf tournament. Well, you know, the first round, it was raining the first day, and I, I really played well, and I got in early, and, and so I was there, you know, I was right off the lead the whole, the whole day. And after, I really don't remember much about it after that, Chris, except I remember the pivotal hole both days. I played the last round with Buddy Allen. I do remember that. And the 14th hole, I had I drove in the right trees, and you know, I'm struggling to try to make the, because back then the top 25 got the next year's Masters. So that was a big deal. There's only like a one-or-touch, two-shot swing there. So if I make a couple bogeys come in, I might miss out on that part. And so I, I drove in the right right rough on on 14, and I had to hit it out of the rough, up over the long shot, whatever it is. And then I hit a three-iron, and I knocked it in the hole, made an eagle two, uh, which was kind of crazy because the day before on the exact same hole, I was in the other, other side of the fair, off the fairway on the other side, and I knocked it one inch from the hole. And what I wow. do remember more than anything else was as I walked up to the green, as I was putting surface and people are roaring, going crazy because the Masters fans are great no matter who you are. If you do something, do something great, they love it. And I remember seeing, looking up in the TV tower, and if people remember the name Jack Whitaker, who was a famous announcer, did a lot of the Kentucky Derbies, mm-hmm. horse racing and golf. He was actually standing up and clapping for me because he had become a friend of mine. Wow. And that was kind of, that part I'll never forget, you know, because he, he was a famous person, a really nice man. And that that made me feel really good, and then, you know, and I ended up making top fifteen, which was which was nice. Now here's the, here's the kicker for that for people who are listening. I finished fifteenth in the Masters in nineteen seventy five, as you just as you just said. How much money do you think I made? <laughs> Most people say, oh, forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars. No, I made twenty eight hundred dollars. Today, the top one twenty, <laughs> top fifteenth in the Masters makes at least one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. So what a difference wow. it is it made and how much money is available. Isn't that something? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, you know what so, I tell people, know, I don't care how much the I don't care what the value of the dollar is and how much what kind of interest rates you're making, seventy five or a hundred thousand dollars put in the bank for thirty years is gonna grow a lot faster than twenty eight hundred dollars <laughs> in the bank for thirty years. <laughs> so that's why I'm still working. Indeed. <laughs> and so Alan, like I mentioned, right, you you had eighteen top tens on tour 69 top 25 during the 1970s which is one of the greatest decades in the history you know of the pga tour outside of the match what are some of your favorite memories 
from being out on the tour at that time and the guys you got to play with? Oh, you know, it was, it was just a, the tour was a little different in those days. Uh, there were a lot more acquaintances than they are than they were for quite a few years. Uh, we all got along pretty good. There were some guys you didn't like, but most everybody, they're not friends per se, but they're just a good bunch of guys that we were hanging around and there wasn't that much money. So there wasn't dog eat dog all the time. And I think the tour made a turn a few years later when it started getting, it got a lot of money in there and, and people started getting a little bit hardcore. And, and I, I know this isn't not answering the question straight out, but, what I want to say right now is that I really am thrilled the way the game of golf is going right now with the camaraderie and the sportsmanship of all these young players that are coming up. They play junior golf together and they become friends again. Where for quite a few years in between my my era and this era, the game had kind of dwindled down as far as the relationships and the, I think the sportsmanship and the charisma that the players had in my era and today. Now they're back to to really showing some good shows, which I think is great for the game of golf. But, you know, memories-wise, you know, I always loved playing with Arnold Palmer. He was my idol and still was till the day he died and still will be the rest of my life until I see him in heaven. We'll play together and have a good time up there. It was always a thrill to play with him because, you know, he, he worked the gallery, but he, he knew how to talk to the players too. And he always treated you equal. Uh, he was just – I love that. And Lee Trevino was, became a good friend of mine. I played with him in the Bing Crosby, which is now the AT&T, I think it's called. Uh, I was his amateur partner in 1970, 1971, I think it was. And we became friends and became a mentor to me. So I always really enjoyed playing with him. So that kind of stuff made the tour, made, you know, made it fun. Those were kind of memories, just being around those kind of people, I think, that I still keep with me today. Not not so much the individual tournaments, but, you know, just the, the fact that they those guys took the time to be your friend, which is, means a lot, meant a lot to me. And, Alan, you mentioned Lee Trevino, and I saw a playing lesson that you did for uh, the Golf Channel's Golf Academy, one that Lee Trevino mm-hmm. talked to you about chipping out of tall grass around the green. Do you mind uh, sharing that tip with our audience? No, absolutely not. That We call that, my name for it is a chop shot. And he, he saw me struggling one day when I, this is when I, once I was on the tour, or as I was on the tour, not when I was playing when he was an amateur. And I was having trouble getting out of the long grass. And even though I flew, grew up in Florida and I was trying to play it more like a sand shot, which a lot of people tell you to open the face and flop it out or whatever. And he said, here, I got a shot for you, Miller. So he, t- he made me take my pitching wedge. or and he said, you can do it with a pitching wedge or sand wedge. I said, I want you to play it way back on your right foot and sometimes even outside of your right foot. And all you're going to do is break your wrist up and down, and you're going to try to tap the ground as close to the ball as possible. Kind of like, you know, again, the young people don't know about this, but a game of tiddlywinks where you used to push down on one and it popped the other one up. When I was a kid, that was a famous game, right? So I, I did it and I put the ball back and he said, oh, you're going to try, what you're doing there is you're going to eliminate the grass behind the ball because you're going to come down as up and down as close to the ball as possible into the ground. And it's just going to go down and it's going to pop the ball right out. So I started using that shot and I got so good at it because I'm a wristy player. I still believe, I believe in using a lot of wrist to release the club. Um, I got so good at it. I use it everywhere. And the shot that if people remember watching the lady that won the women's U.S. Open this year, and I don't remember her name, but she's Chinese or Korean, and she hit it over the green at 18, and she had to get up and in and three to have a chance to win or to win it outright. And they were making a big deal of how hard the shot was. And she played a, what I, we call the chop shot. She had it back on her back foot. She kind of tapped, you know, broke the wrist up and down and tapped the ground a little bit, and the ball came out 
low into the hill, but then it had a, what we call a slower dead roll. It hits the green and it almost kind of hesitates. I call it a skid roll and it skids for a second. Then it has a slow roll like a putt and she knocked it down about six inches from the hole to clinch the tournament. And the other girl knocked it over the green and tried to take a lofted club and bounce it up and try to land it and hope it didn't run too much. And she came up short and whatever, made a triple bogey or something. But that's a shot that he showed me. And, and it works It works out of long grass because what you're doing is, you're again, you're so steep on the angle of the club it coming up and down that you're eliminating the grass behind the ball so you don't tend to lay the side over it. You'll get it, up, you'll get it out all the time. It's a shot that, uh, again, we did that tip on the Golf Channel. If people want to watch it, they can go Google, Google, or go to thegolfchannel.com and, and just search my name and it'll come up with a tip. And I think it's called a tip that Lee Trevino taught Alan Miller. And Cindy did one too with the same, same exact shot because I taught it to her. But it's something I've used forever. And, and you know, it's the kind of shots I call them the inside the rope shots. People if go to a tournament, they'll see players talking to each other and they'll be experienced. Look like they're just hitting shots, but sometimes they're talking about different ways to do things. And, and those are the kind of shots that the general public may not hear about. You really won't read it in the book because it's kind of hard to write about. But really, it's just an up and down motion with the wrist into the ground as close to the ball as possible. Pops the ball right out, of the, right out onto the green and has a slow roll, which is great. And that, you know, Alan, you make a really good point because I think, you know, players teaching each other things is something that doesn't get enough recognition. We probably, to your point, we probably don't even know that it's going on. Are there other exactly. tips that guys either shared with you or you pointed out to somebody else along the way for you? Well, again, if, if you want to go to the golf channel, dot com again and look on the tip I said did just did one with I think it's titled Hall of Fame putting tip or something to that effect and Hubert Green one time he in fact I was playing in Orlando at, at uh, Rio Pinar I was paired with Hubert and Arnold Palmer and right before the tournament I was having putting troubles and I said Hubert you're a really good putter to use a split grip well, Hubert and I played a lot of junior golf together he I said how do you do the split grip because he saw me messing around with it. he said well, this is how you do it. And he te- had me put my, I'm right-handed, so my right hand's on the lower part of the club. And he said, take your point, your little finger and your ring finger and just clamp them together, not real tight, but just clamp them against the palm of your hand and just going to use those two fingers to push the club back and forward, back and backwards and forwards. And it's more of a shoving stroke, back and forth shoving motion. And he, he showed it to me. And I, I put it like that for over a year and a half doing it. Uh, but it's something that, again, that, that I wouldn't have learned if, without asking Hubert. And people could have seen us off on the side and on what the heck they're doing over there. Nobody has any idea. So those are the kind of things that I do remember. You know, a lot of it I've forgotten about, stuff that, you know, people might have helped me with along the way. But, again, it's it, again it becomes a camaraderie because it, at my stage and what I see today is that guys aren't trying to kill each other out there anymore. They want the other guy to play good. They just want to play a little better than he is. Where for quite a few years I got into I want to beat your butt and I need to beat your butt, period. So I think, you know, that the whole atmosphere has changed, which you're going to see that a lot, I think, coming up. Does this player help that player and more? And that, again, that's what golf's all about. It's not, you know, it's about being a good person and trying to help other people. And that's why I like to, why Cindy and I love teaching too, because we're trying to give back some of the stuff we've learned and just ways to do things to make the game better. And to that point, Alan, talk about what you and Cindy are doing now and how people can, uh, you know, get in touch with you guys, see what you're doing, follow you online, follow you uh, on social media as well. Yeah, well, we, we teach full-time in Buffalo, and we do about three or four times a year. We do boot camp in the wintertime especially. We do boot camps in Florida. We've been doing them at Orange County National, and we can do them other places sometimes. Um, but we teach a lot of kids, and, and you know, a lot of I teach a lot of old people that are, 
falling apart right now and have trouble walking and stuff because you can flag off the rest of your life if you know an easy way to do it. Uh, Cindy's got a reputation of quick fixing people, and I, I like to take the guys, the people, ladies and or men that got a little try to get a little methodical. But we and we trade off students all the time. But we do a lot of stuff like that. We do some corporate outings uh, where we go to you know play golf with the people and, and help them with their games and doing stuff. And Cindy does a lot of the speaking stuff, and she's got this thing uh, uh, nonprofit called Pursue Your It where we're trying to help uh, kids get better in life and stuff. So we're both certified in behaviorals and stuff because we went through a lot of stuff in our own lives. So we learn how people operate. And I really like what your last your last guy on that I listened to at the end said about different ways to judge distance. Well, a lot of it depends on if a person's a field player or a methodical player. You know, some people have feel, some people don't, so you have to adapt. Well, a lot of people don't even know about that, so we try to make them aware of that and personalities. Uh, I'm a very, even though I'm talking a lot right now, I'm a very quiet person. I couldn't play golf like Lee Trevino. Lee Trevino couldn't play like Ben Hogan. So you have to know your personality and know how to do it. So we do a lot of stuff like that. Help. Basically, our goal is to help people have a better life, not just in golf. So um, you can get in touch. If people get in touch with me by just going to my website, alanmillergolf.com, uh, or they can go to Cindy's website, cindymillergolf.com. And I have some, you know, when she goes to book a lesson or stuff like that that we do together, it's on her website too. Or they can just look us up on the internet. We're both in Buffalo, New York, and available to anybody that needs some help. Well, Alan, so much more I'd love to get into with you. I hope you'll come back and join me again real soon. This this thing, you know, segment of the show is owned by you're fantastic. I would love to be talk to you anytime you'd like. Well, I appreciate that very much. Alan, thanks for your time tonight. Uh, all the best to you and Cindy and the rest of your family. Like I say, I hope we get the uh, the privilege of having you back on the show again real soon. You just call me whenever you need me. I'm here anytime. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Alan. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. That is Alan Miller. And, again, folks, you look him up online, alanmillergolf.com and uh, cindymillergolf.com. As you as you guys know, Cindy's been on the show three or four times, and she's fantastic. I've really enjoyed getting to know her. And, like I say, she's one of my favorite guests here on the show. And, boy, that that uh, that half hour or so with Alan just flew by. Such great stuff. And there's so much more to get into about his playing career and, and things that, uh, that he has gone through and dealt with in life. And, uh, hopefully, like I say, we get the privilege of getting Alan back on the show real soon. We'll try to do that for you. All right, folks, it is time for me to uh, put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. But before we close up shop, we always like to remind you about our great friend and uh, PGA Tour pro, uh, Jim Estes, and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. So we'll talk about that, and we'll get a word from our friends also about the Salt Creek Golf Retreat. Hang with me. We'll be right back. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S., 
If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. If you're looking for a great place for your annual golf outing, a weekend golf getaway, or just a round of golf with your buddy, then Salt Creek Golf Retreat is just what you're looking for. Centrally located in Nashville, Indiana, just south of Indianapolis and west of Cincinnati, this challenging but fair 18-hole golf course appeals to all skill levels, and its scenic views of rolling hills and tree-lined fairways are sure to make golfing memories for years to come. Owned and operated by former Purdue and New York Giants fullback Randy Manier, Salt Creek Golf Retreat offers stay-and-play packages that include golf and a fully furnished one- or two-bedroom condo. After your round, be sure to stop by the 19th Hole Sports Bar and Restaurant for great food, fun, and drinks. Randy and his staff will treat you like family. For more information, log on to saltcreekgolf.com. That's saltcreekgolf.com. Or give them a call at 812-558-5944. Salt Creek Golf Retreat. Start making your golfing memories today. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Chris Chaya and Alan Miller for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Team with Chris Mascaro. Give me your feedback right there. Give me a comment. And plus, if you've got a question that you either want to ask you know, one of our future guests or you know, someone who's been on the show you know, already, please let me know. We'll be glad to get that question to that person and try to get an answer for you. You can see who are some of our future guests are going to be by going online to our website, nextonthetea.net. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari, our announcer, Joe Lajanusa, who just did that great Salt Creek Golf Retreat ad for us. Thursday Night Tailgate airs live every week from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio. That show like this one is also available as a free podcast by going to Podbean. We can't thank those folks enough for uh, you know having both shows featured right there in their sports and recreation section. And plus, if you love podcasts right across all genres, you can find them right there on Podbean and on their mobile app as well. They're great folks with a lot of great content. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined every week by five NFL legends sharing their stories you know, about their playing days and their insights into today's game as well. This Thursday night is our sixth anniversary of that show, so please you know, come join us uh, by going on to Blog Talk Radio and streaming us live. Again, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, sixth anniversary special plus our uh, fourth annual Guest Hall of Fame inductions. So we've got some great folks uh, joining us this week on Thursday Night Tailgate. You can find that show online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com. And you can stream uh, our, our archive episodes, or you can find out who some of our future guests are going to be for this show on NextOnTheT.net again and on ThursdayNightTailgate.com. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We know you got thousands of podcasts out there available to you. We really appreciate you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. Christmas
down. We're PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors. 